0: Listener, I'm your host, Sally Holder. Join me each week to escape and be refreshed with stories of people who dared not to settle for the American dream. Go beyond just getting enough in life and live into a place where big dreams actually do come true. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover why internal success is better than external success. Be prepared to redefine what your best looks like in your life and free yourself from the guilt of wanting more. I cannot wait to get started sharing these stories with you. Okay, you guys, this is likely the most famous person I've had on the podcast thus far. I'm dying, but you likely don't even know this woman's name. Her name is Amy Mills, and she is known as the heiress of barbecue. She's the daughter of famous barbecuer Mike Mills. We'll get into all of the details about him and how he started the company later in the episode. She runs 17th Street Barbecue. She's a restaurant consultant, judge for some of the most famous Food Network shows like Chopped and Beat Bobby Flay. And now she even has her own show debuting August 1st called Barbecue Brawl. So make sure you tune in, tell all of your friends. I cannot wait to watch it. Oh, and if all that weren't enough, she's also the James Beard Award nominated author of Peace, Love, and Barbecue, a television personality, and an expert in branding, marketing, and public relations. Right. She is a complete badass. Her company, Cue Consulting, offers premier barbecue industry education, and she consults with restaurants and barbecuers worldwide. Are you really getting a sense of how amazing this woman is? I know. I have the honor of meeting her at the Southern Sea Summit, a fantastic entrepreneurial summit for female entrepreneurs. And if you want more on that, tune in to episode number two of the podcast. Amy was so warm and inviting, but certainly not a pushover. I could immediately tell that she was someone that was making waves in the business world. I was listening to her discuss and describe her next business venture of creating a co-packing facility for those in the barbecue world. I loved her immediately, and I know you're going to, too. If not for her personality and story, then you're going to love all of the incredible tactical information she shares about exactly how to effectively tell your company's story. Clearly, there's an art to it when certain people get all the press and others just don't. Have you ever thought to yourself, I wish I knew how to get more press for my company? Well, Amy tells you exactly how to make that happen. One thing that's often hard for entrepreneurs is the feeling that they're not in control of the growth of their own brand. She shares how to be more in control of your brand and how to make the media pay attention to what you have to say. Get a pen and paper because you're going to want to take notes. Trust me. I cannot wait for you to get to know Amy Mills. Let's get started with the episode. Well, hi, Amy. Welcome to the Hitting Rock Metal podcast. Sally,
1: it is such a pleasure. I loved meeting you at the Southern Sea back in February, and it's just a double bonus to speak to you on your podcast, and I'm very flattered that you asked me to be part of it.
0: Well, I've got to tell our listeners, we were hooked up at the Southern Sea for dinner one night. And I feel like it was a match made in heaven. I was absolutely blown away by your story. And you were, you were really one of the first people I thought of when the podcast started. Just a really dynamic business owner doing big things. And I love to be able to get more women's stories out there and be able to share, you know, some inspiring stories of women doing big things all over the country. So thank you for taking your time. To share your story with all of our listeners. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. So I'll kick it off kind of the same way I always do, which is giving you an opportunity to share your story of how you got started in business, where you began, and then kind of where it led you along the way to to where you ended up today. Okay. Well, it's a long, winding story,
1: as many good ones are. My family is very entrepreneurial. My dad is one of five children four of them had their own businesses or participated in a family business. And it's really just what I knew growing up. You know, you work for yourself. I did go away to school at the University of Missouri to their wonderful journalism school. And I went off on my own path. I ran far and fast from my family's barbecue business, I ran far and fast to Dallas, then to Boston. And I worked in advertising, marketing, PR for a variety of financial services and retail organizations and got such great training. And I, I really had a long, good career. Uh, on the side, I always had some other little thing going. I made these picture frames that I sold to gift shops all over up and down the East Coast. I made stationery. I designed and printed stationery for a while. Um, then I sold other people's stationery, again, through just little home parties. I also founded a speaking and training business called The Proper Manor, and I did corporate protocol and business communication skills training for companies. And I would use my vacation time and my weekends to fly off and produce those trainings all over the country. And my goal was always to grow that business uh, and then leave my full-time job. And I was actually in the process of doing that. I had quite a large client in Virginia, and I I spent a lot of time there several summers training people. But in the midst of all that, I got divorced. And that really threw my um, plans in a different direction. During all of this time, my dad was growing the 17th Street brand. He separately had a dental laboratory, and that's what I grew up you know, knowing him to do. But he also always had a bar on the side, just kind of for fun. And he would have fish fries and cook barbecue and give the food away in order to get people to come and drink more beer. So... In the mid-80s, he switched that model a little bit and actually bought a bar that he turned into a restaurant. This bar was over is over 100 years old now. At the time, it wasn't. But there had always been a barbecue sandwich and a hamburger served there. And when I was little, you would go through the drive through and you could buy bags of burgers or barbecues to take home. But it was very much a bar for men. Women and children would never go into this place. So he made it into a barbecue restaurant. And the story goes from there. He really, you know, shot to fame in the barbecue world. And I paid attention, but I didn't pay attention.
0: Amy, hold on. Are you telling me that your dad went from being a dentist to having a barbecue restaurant? I am.
1: And he he wasn't a dentist. He's a dental technician. So he had a lab that made dental prosthetics. So bridges, crowns, false teeth, all of the things that dentists need to go in your mouth. My uncle was a dentist and they had a business, you know, up in two, a two-story building. My dad was on the top floor, my uncle on the bottom floor, but he serviced all the dentists in the Southern Illinois area. That's crazy, right? It's
0: crazy. I, I know love this story already. I know.
1: It's, <laughs> nothing goes in a straight line, right? <laughs>
0: right. Right.
1: Never, never. So I would always do little projects for him. Um, you know, in 1994, I was working at Talbot's. Um, the headquarters of Talbot's is in Hingham, Massachusetts, where my home in Boston is. And he is like in Vogue magazine. Is How weird is that? You know, Jeffrey Steingarten, the esteemed food critic of Vogue, wrote this whole big article about judging at Memphis in May and my dad winning and him getting to eat these ribs. And it's really just a magical neat story. So, So, he
0: didn't just half-ass this restaurant, excuse my language. Yeah, like he He, dove all the way in. He did,
1: and he got national acclaim, you know, pretty early on and pretty quickly and has really, you know, been able to sustain that. I would always do little projects for him. I might write something or design something, but I was really very uninterested in this world. I, you know, again, ran far and fast from all of that. Mm -hmm. So, In 2000, I got divorced, and I was really yearning for home, but I knew I needed to keep my children in Boston, and they were in school and near their dad and all of those things. But I began spending more time in Southern Illinois, and I started doing more and more for my dad. At this time, he had been tapped to help Danny Meyer of Union Square Hospitality Group open Blue Smoke. So I would travel to New York. Just a small
0: name in the industry. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) I would travel to New York and help them or the chefs would come to Southern Illinois and for a couple weeks at a time and just cook and learn from my dad. And I would fly in here and, you know, wash dishes and just help in any way I could. So I just kind of got sucked back into the business. But what happened is that I started looking at this business and all of the people we knew through this world with a different lens a more mature lens. And I thought, wow, you know, this is this unique subculture of America that nobody has really captured in a book. Like, So I found a book agent and I wrote a proposal and I ended up writing Peace, Love and Barbecue, which was nominated for a James Beard Award and still to this day is a best-selling barbecue book. And I think really considered like one of the three books you need to read if you are into barbecue. And I would put that kind of in the class, and, um, you know, with Smokestack Lightning, uh, Peace, Love, and Barbecue, Legends of Texas Barbecue. There's certainly now hundreds of other good barbecue books out there, but, you know, if you read any article about the best books, um, we're very fortunate that that one is always
0: mentioned. (laughs) I love this. This is something I didn't even know about you, Amy. You failed to mention that you're a best-selling author. When we were at dinner, I believe. And now I'm going to have to go and order Peace, Love, and Barbecue on Amazon Prime (laughs) right away. Well, I have another one, too, called Praise the Lord. I have
1: 13 years between books because I just had to come up with something new to say. Praise the
0: Lord? Yes. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Great. Such catchy titles. Thank
1: you. That journalism training. So all that journalism training has served me so well. And, you know, I had a career I loved, but I pivoted from that career to come back into my family business because, you know, at heart, I want my own schedule. I want to build something that's mine and ours and something I can then leave to my children. So I'm certainly glad that I did other things first, but I'm very, feel very fortunate to be back into this business.
0: Yeah. I mean, I was just recording another episode and and talking about the thread that always exists between our careers and how, although it doesn't seem to make quote-unquote sense that, you know, advertising and barbecue go together, but at the same time, there is a deep thread because all of those skills are translatable and very useful to a barbecue brand, right? Absolutely.
1: Any business that you have, and especially a family-owned small restaurant-type business, PR, marketing, um, now social media, those things are critical to learning to tell your story, finding people to tell the story to, and just consistently getting that story out there is really what makes or breaks your business.
0: Great. What have you found? I'm just curious now. I mean, what have you found to be the most effective ways to get your company's story, 17th Street Barbecue, out there?
1: Well, one thing listeners should know about 17th Street is that we are in the tip of southern Illinois. We're six hours south of Chicago. We're closer to St. Louis, Nashville, or Memphis. And it's not an easy trek here. And yet, people come from all over the world every day to eat our barbecue. And that is because of years of press, television appearances, um, social media posts, articles, all of those things are just building blocks to get you to various levels in your marketing journey and in the journey of telling your story. And those are skills. The, the people I've met along the way and the relationships I've formed in the press have really been critical to getting that message out there. And you know, we've been fortunate to be in places where I could meet those people and then sustain the relationships. And I think that might be something people don't often do is once they have a relationship with a writer or an editor, they may not keep up with that person. And learning how to keep up with the person and not be annoying, I think that's there's really an art to that relationship building that needs to happen. But those contacts I've made and relationships, and even some some are relationships, some are friendships, and there's definitely a difference in that. But those relationships have just come again and again, been so fruitful to me, because of course, the writers and the editors move around, and then they can bring your story, they think of you, they can bring your story to a whole new audience.
0: Oh, I love that tip. So, you know, being a small business owner myself, and I know that so many of our listeners are, what would you say are the best ways to be able to begin that process of building those relationships? Well,
1: number one, whenever I'm interviewed, I always, anymore, it's usually on the phone or sometimes it's just via email and you're writing back and forth, but always, always a follow-up often when I'm interviewed on the phone, I'll hang up and I'll think about three things I should have said. So I will always follow up with an email and I'll say, you know, I forgot to tell you this, this, and this. And I write those thoughts as sentences or paragraphs that that person can copy and paste right into a story. I want them to have to do as little as possible to tell my story. So any press release we send, any media alert, any questions I answer when somebody has a questionnaire that they send me for their story or their blog or whatever, I write it just as though, just how I want them to print it. And they love that. They love not having to take the time to edit what I'm doing. And it's very easy to copy and paste. So as much work as you can do for someone, they so appreciate that. And they also appreciate hearing from you when you have a different take on things. You know, I've developed a relationship with an editor at Bloomberg and that person used to be at Food and Wine, now Bloomberg, and so now she's writing more business-oriented stories. So, she's I'm the person she thinks of when beef prices are high or pork prices are going crazy or something unique is happening on the business side of things. It's not so much like here's this is about your food, but it's about the business of running a restaurant. And I think all, lots of people just are, con- you just want your restaurant out there, right? Your, or your business to be out there in the news. But when you start being viewed as an expert, and you can appeal to other publications too, that adds a whole new dimension
0: to your story and to your credibility. It's so well said. And I think that that's an area that a lot of people neglect. Um, I've heard it referred to before by people in the industry as newsjacking. So taking some you know, relevant story that refers to their industry and being able to write about it um, from their perspective or their point of view and then being able to send that out to people in the industry to to print as well. Exactly. There are so many facets to every story. You can say, here's my
1: wonderful pork sandwich. And then you can talk about the price of pork. And then you can talk about the equipment it took to produce the pork. And all of a sudden, you've got three different angles On that story, and they're all interesting and relevant to some person.
0: That is fascinating. So, what if there's a small business owner that's listening right now that says, Well, I just don't have any contacts in the publishing world at all right now. Where would I even start to get to know someone that I could write to?
1: The most important thing I stress is to start local. So we all want that national publicity, but at the end of the day, it's the local people day in, day out who are keeping your business afloat. So you really need to saturate your local market also. And getting to know the person at the local paper, the local radio stations, and the local television stations is really key. What's Also key to know is that especially the television people, they change about every two years. Those producers and reporters come to small-town America, cut their teeth, and then they move to the next level of market. So you're constantly looking at your media list, which you need to develop, and you develop that just by calling the switchboard at any of these places and saying, who's the person who comes out and covers stories like XYZ? And they will happily connect you to that person. You can leave a voicemail, you can get an email, and then you just start politely calling them, emailing them, um, inviting them in to taste something. Food is a calling card for sure. So you have something if you're in the food world to, to give them. But if not, you'll have to come up with some other hook or some other interesting reason to meet you. It might be taking them out for coffee to hear about what you're doing. It, for you... Sally. Maybe it's inviting somebody to come and listen to a conference that you're producing or an an event or a meeting or sitting in if you have a friend who would be amenable to this um, on a coaching session or just really giving them a glimpse of your world, but also having a hook and something of interest for them to write about. They're not going to meet you and think, oh, here's a story we can do. You need to say, I want to do a story about XYZ. Would this be something of interest
0: to you? Such a great tip. I mean, it goes back to the one that you gave before, which is make the work easy for them and, you know, go in with an intention already set. And and that's incredibly helpful. And it sounds like makes it much more likely for you to be able to get the press that you want.
1: Exactly. And then another huge tip is just to be the first to follow up. So if somebody writes to me and, you know, wants an interview, I am going to try to be on it right, the first person to respond is usually the person they talk to because they just don't have time to chase lots of people down. And in that, I would also have a Dropbox with photos that are most requested. So people want a headshot, they want a picture of the restaurant, and they want a picture of food. So all of those are readily available to get right out to somebody when they need those things.
0: Oh, I love that tip as well. Just so just go ahead and have that prepared and on the ready when you're going to go ahead and go through this process of starting to kind of pitch yourself to press. Exactly. So
1: and then of and course, making sure that things like your social media are all really up to date because more and more now, people are just lifting right off Instagram photos to use in articles, especially online. Interesting, who knew? I know. Exactly. I, I know. I've seen lots of things and I'm like, how did they get that and you look a little more closely and you're like oh that came from instagram
0: fascinating so going back to your story you know you've now transitioned into the family business and what exactly was your role there i really started long
1: distance so again most of my time in back in boston but doing marketing, social media, PR, writing the book, all of those things, I could do long distance. And as long as you have a computer and FedEx and a cell phone, you can pretty much work from anywhere doing, doing those sorts of tasks. So I did lots of that there. And luckily, I would, was also close to New York. So I could be in New York and go to an event and continue to meet people and just have a presence for us in New York. And that was so helpful rather than having to travel from Southern Illinois. If you're in the food world, and really many worlds, I would say fashion probably too, the ability to be in a bigger city that's important to your market and important in the media world, I can't really discount that. That's where I met the people. We were fortunate to have helped Union Square Hospitality and Blue Smoke put together the Big Apple Barbecue Block Party, which... Last year was the 16th year and it went on hiatus this year, but 16 years is a really long time. And in the very formative years, so much press came to that. And I really had an opportunity to sit and meet and greet and entertain people. And that was just like, you know, having your living room on Madison Avenue and inviting all these people there. You just don't get that opportunity very often. And... Over the years, the stories changed. I really credit that block party with a lot of the interest in and resurgence of barbecue in America because they brought in all of the best regional barbecue from across the country. A reporter would have to take a 15,000-mile road trip to eat all that barbecue. And frankly, publications don't have those kind of budgets today. So they really served up on a silver platter the best barbecue in America, and any reporter could come and take advantage of the, of that. Eat the barbecue, meet the people, look at the differences. It was a pretty amazing opportunity. I think that's kind of a once-in-a-lifetime
0: opportunity for sure. It sounds like it. So how did you end up landing that opportunity? Well... I mean, be- I- What I love is that you come from Southern Illinois and I I hear a lot of entrepreneurs tell me all the time, well, you know, I don't live there and I don't know if I could be as big as someone that lives in in New York or in San Francisco. And, you know, my promise to them is, yes, you can. You just need to make the effort to make it happen. So, and it sounds like you guys did that. So how did you make it happen?
1: Well, the way, again, it's a series of steps and a series of relationships. So it starts with, winning at Memphis in May and Jeffrey Steingarten writing about it in Vogue and then being on Good Morning America several times because of those Memphis in May wins. Then it goes to meeting a judge, two judges at Memphis in May, um, Pat Daly and Tom Vertel. Tom is a Broadway producer of The Producers and Hairspray and Um, you know, many more acclaimed shows. He's won Tony Awards, but he got into judging barbecue, and he met my dad, and he and his companion, Pat, they all became great friends. Tom wanted our barbecue in New York, where he could have it anytime he wanted. And so he and Pat are very entrepreneurial themselves. She owned a company that sold Broadway tickets. They started contacting restaurateurs and saying, would you be interested in barbecue? And most of them said no. But his partner, um, his name is Rocco Landisman, grew up in St. Louis with Danny Meyer. And he said, you know, I bet Maybe Danny Meyer would be interested in this. This was back in the late 1990s. Danny had just opened Gramercy Tavern, and he was getting ready to open Tabala and 11
0: Madison Park. So his plate was pretty full. He already had so our listeners know, those are some of the top restaurants in the country located in New York, if not in the world. And he wrote a very famous book as well called Setting the Table. And so he's extremely well known in the, not only in the food world, but now as well, you know, in the business world for his tips on running really well run uh, establishments. So, okay. And as an aside, I think that book is applicable to any business.
1: Absolutely. Fabulous business book. And let's not Forget that he's the founder of Shake Shack. So he's, and now 20 plus restaurants. So this was, you know, early ish in his career. But Tom had Danny over. They had put a Cardinals game on. Um, Danny is a major Cardinals baseball fan. We shipped in some ribs and he ate the ribs and he was like, wow, this is really interesting. If these taste this good frozen and reheated, I wonder what it tastes like at the source. And so he brought two of his. Um, a chef and one of his partners came on a road trip and showed up unannounced and ate the food and after they determined they liked it they asked to talk to my dad and the seed was planted Uh, my dad took them back at our pit to our pits and was showing them the ribs coming off and he tore a rib open and there's like a little puff of blue smoke that comes out and my dad said, look, look at that blue smoke that comes out if the rib is perfect and just at that perfect time. And they looked at each other and they're like, that's it. That's the name of our restaurant. So that was about a three-year journey then in putting that restaurant together. But that relationship, you know, then went on to help form the block party. And when they first started Blue Smoke, they really were eviscerated in the press. Uh, people didn't quite understand it. They were trying to talk barbecue in many different Dialects. Um, barbecue is a very personal thing. If you ever read re- barbecue reviews or hear somebody vehemently tell you that the barbecue they love is the best barbecue. you know you know the passion behind that culture Mm -hmm. and behind that food so they decided to have that it is
0: it is funny Uh, they're very passionate about it having gone to school in nashville i can tell you people argue about memphis barbecue versus texas barbecue it's it's crazy absolutely and to each person
1: that barbecue is their favorite the barbecue you cut your teeth on is what is the benchmark for you so if you can come in second or third to that benchmark you're doing really good (laughs) you're doing a good job but when they, when they were having trouble with this press, they decided to have a block party. And they invited their four famous friends to come in. And they wanted people to understand, like, here is some good regional barbecue. These people are our friends. Like, we're legitimate. They're like, really to help legitimize Blue Smoke. And so we had this little block party in front of Blue Smoke. We had no idea what to expect. There were five of us, um, Blue Smoke, us at, we at 17th Street. Ed Mitchell from North Carolina, Kreitz Market from Lockhart, Texas, and Chris Lilly from Big Bob Gibson. We, 10,000 people came to this little party. No. We sold out both days. It rained. Nobody left the line. They just put up the umbrellas. People came back with baggies and empty pizza boxes trying to take food home. It was crazy. We had a series of interviews inside uh, moderated by John T. Edge of the Southern Foodways Alliance. One of my favorite little bits of press to come out of that was from the late Stephen Shaw, who was such a lovely man. Um, he was one of the co-founders of a very robust forum called e that was a very big deal culinarily for years before other forms of social media took, took over. But he wrote something to the effect that there's so much important in the culture of america in the basement of blue smoke today and if that building were taken out it would be a far larger loss to america than if they took out the state house or some something to that effect but just you know the treasure that are these men who make up this wonderful
0: subculture of america It sounds like he incorporated more of what you're stressing here today, which is that storytelling. You know, he he painted a beautiful picture for people to be able to equate the value that was in, you know, represented there that day. And he did such a beautiful job of it, obviously. Exactly. And I really think that was the first time some people
1: in the larger media world were like, oh, barbecue, like, this is a thing. And it's you know, much more of a thing than we thought. Calvin Trillin famously wrote about Arthur Bryant's in Playboy in the late 70s. And he said, Arthur Bryant's is the best restaurant in America. Not barbecue, but just the best restaurant. And he meant that. He's a Kansas City boy. And that's like a touchstone of his youth and, you know, something he looked forward to every time he visited. But barbecue really didn't start getting a lot more attention, I think, until more thing, more media were aware of barbecue. Um, more major, m- more major mainstream media were aware of barbecue as a whole, and I really feel like that started with Blue Smoke and Danny Meyer shining that spotlight on it, and then the larger formation of this block party, which kept morphing to a bigger and bigger thing. And it w- it always was a fundraiser. That first year, the money was given to jazz at Lincoln Center, and then in later years as Danny became involved in the restoration of Madison Square Park, the money went to the Madison Square Park Conservancy.
0: Well, you give the credit to Blue Smoke, but it sounds like it very much was also your dad, which is incredible because today, in today's day and age, I absolutely think of barbecue as this powerhouse kind of industry that sits alone and separate from, you know, the food industry you know, is, is one. And then you've got your barbecue industry, right? I mean, it is a food group. Barbecue is a food yeah. group.
1: I, I think as any daughter, I think my daddy hung the moon. And so <laughs> I'm always very, I think every every daughter thinks that, and I, you know, try to be conscious of, you know, what I give credit to, but you know, his nickname is the legend. And oh so my gosh. he would never, he's the most humble person you would ever meet. He's never brags on himself or anything, but. I can say that I, you know, very much attribute a lot of what's happening in American barbecue to him and to things that we've done here at
0: 17th Street. But what I love about that, too, is is what you said earlier is it seems that, you know, they really had an uphill battle that they were facing and, you know, negative press and and all sorts, you know, a, 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 it had not yet had its notoriety that it does today, obviously, and and. Yet he continued on, and they doubled down by creating this, you know, community event. Rather than leaning out, which is what a lot of entrepreneurs do. They begin to doubt when the negative press comes or people, you know, just aren't attaching themselves to the story that you're telling. They assume that either the story's wrong or people don't care about it. And oftentimes I find it's not that, that they simply haven't had enough time yet to evolve into the story that you're telling. And what's so beautiful is he just never wavered from that. That is such a good point,
1: And I love that you bring that up. And I, I think that the story was really being written. So you have all these disparate barbecue things happening. And I really think like we were some of the first people who had barbecue friends across the country. For years in Texas, the barbecue people did not meet or mingle. I introduced, I remember, you know, some people, they would be 30 miles apart. I was friends with these people, but they had never met. That has changed so much, um, the culture of barbecue uh, in all of us getting together and telling the story and really educating people. This was a forum for education that there are different dialects, there are are different meats, there are different woods, there are different methods of cooking, and it's all good. There's no one best barbecue. I always like to say it's like Hollywood and there's an A-list, but there is so much good
0: barbecue out there. Well, I've got to ask, are there many women in this industry other than yourself? (laughs) Funny, you should ask. (laughs) There are women,
1: and women, I think, tend to play support roles. I think there are some who are getting to be more at the forefront. And it's a little bit of an uphill battle. There's, you know, I feel like I am absolutely treated with respect. But there are times when you just have to grit your teeth and roll on. I get lots of, you know, can you ask your dad this question, blah, 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 when I could
0: perfectly well answer that question. Right. And, you know, and that's just something women face in every industry. I'll never forget. Lots of
1: head padding. Exactly. exactly. Yes. But yes. I, it used to really bother me. And now it really doesn't bother me that much because I just put my head down
0: and do the work and the work ends up speaking for itself. Absolutely. I mean, when you're proud of what you do, you don't need that external recognition from them to tell you you're good at what you do. You already know it. Right. Right. Absolutely. Before we get into the meat of the episode, I had to share something really exciting with you. Are you feeling frustrated with where you are or wondering, how do I get where I want to go in my career? I have created something just for you. It's a quiz with 10 quick questions to help you figure out your next steps. All you have to do is go to sallyholder.com. That's S-A-L-L-I-E-H-O-L-D-E-R.com and take the quiz and you will immediately get results on what your next steps should be. Share your results with me directly or tag me on Instagram. It is the perfect place to get started. All right, now back to the episode. So, I'm, I'm just absolutely glued to this story. So, you guys have, uh, you know, had a 10,000 person turnout. What did you expect to show up that day, just so that you're sharing it with us? I don't, I'm not sure we really had an expert.
1: I mean, I think we thought just some people would walk up and buy some food. We had no <laughs> idea it would be these lines would form, and you know, there was a little bit of press about it, not really, though. New York is so there's so much foot traffic, and people just walk by, and there are street fairs and things happening all the time that you can just happen upon. And so, that's a lot of what happened that day. But fortunately, there were some media there again, that e gullet website was so robust and there was a whole thread about New York. And so, you know, the word goes out on that and people who are extreme foodies show up to things like that. It's funny to think in 16 years, like how different the marketplace was and how different it was to get the word out about things. Like you had a forum, you had no Facebook, you had no, you know, you didn't have Eater, you didn't have all these great newsletters. It just didn't happen quite as quickly. But yet people figured it out.
0: Right, exactly. You know, I I love how um, Simon Sinek always talks about, um, uh, you know, the fact that Dr. Martin Luther King convinced 250,000 people to show up, you know, on that particular day in Washington. And how in the world did he do that when he couldn't text anyone? I think it's hilarious, you know, and, and our modes of communication make achieving something like this so much easier In today's day and age. So instead of people thinking, oh, it's more difficult now because there are more people out there, you know, the opposite is actually true. It's such a gift because it means that anyone who lives anywhere can accomplish something like this.
1: They can, but it makes the fact that you have to tell the story, develop the story and tell the story in such a better way, a more convincing way. You have to really attract attention because there is so much noise.
0: So how do you differentiate yourselves in your story telling process, right? How do you know what's the right story to tell? And, you know, how have you guys at 17th Street Barbecue set yourselves apart, you know, within your own story?
1: That is such an interesting question. And there are probably several different facets to it. One thing that we have done Really is continue to grow and evolve. So, a very important part of our business is the consulting arm on Q Consulting. And we really started that informally back in the early 90s. We consulted with the Beau Rivage Casino in Biloxi, Mississippi. They wanted to put in a barbecue restaurant. And so, my dad went down there and helped them. And for years, they even used our barbecue sauce there. At that, no, that's competition. That why would you dare do that? Exactly. Well, I will tell you, you can give somebody your recipe, your rub, your sauce. Tell them everything to do, and it will not taste the same. It just exactly. won't. And it's a lot of it b- is because barbecue is cooking from the heart, and you can f- taste that in the meat. And that's why um, one of our sayings here is barbecue is a culture, not a concept. So when somebody calls me and says, hey, I understand you do consulting. I have a pizza place and a steak place and I want to open a barbecue concept. It's like fingers on a chalkboard. I just <laughs> I know this is not going to go well because in order to be successful in barbecue, you have to immerse yourself in the culture. The people who come into your restaurant want to talk about Pitmasters and the shows they've seen on TV. They want to know, do you know Myron Mixon? They want to know what kind of wood you use, what kind of pit you use, because they have watched and absorbed and learned from food TV. And you have to be able to talk that language and answer those questions. And so does your staff. And that's where barbecue restaurants fail. It's also, you know, just the most expensive kind of restaurant to run. It's protein based. You can't, if you run out of ribs, sell out of ribs, you can't just quickly cook more like you can a hamburger. But let me circle back to the, to the consulting. We consulted with the Beau Rivage. We consulted with Blue Smoke. And people just began showing up here or calling and wanting to sit at the foot of my dad and talk barbecue and pick his brain and learn everything about the business. And he will talk to anybody anytime. And he would do that to the detriment of our own business. We would be needing to do things and he'd be busy having a five hour conversation with someone. So <laughs> I, I you know, taking a cue from my training world thought, I am going to start a consulting company. I'm gonna formalize this and monetize this because time is money. And we are gonna start having these classes and people and people call and they want to come and meet him, they can come to one of these classes.
0: So, I love in, it. so April, you're monetizing the old quote unquote pick your brain.
1: Exactly. I hate Smart. that term. Pick your brain, (laughs) so people can come and we they can really have you know some focused time because you really can't help somebody in a conversation. You can you can tell them a few things, but so we offer these two day seminars and people have come now over thirteen hundred people from forty five states and sixteen countries, and these are people who are some have. You know, some very esteemed Texas families in the business for 50 years have come because all you need is one new idea or way of doing things, and that can transform your business and that can translate into lots of dollars to people who are, have been in the business for a little while or people just thinking about the business. So I'm really proud that we have helped incubate a lot of new businesses, and I think we've helped other businesses be more successful. People have come again and again to these classes. They bring their staff, their as, you know, team building, outings. There really is no other professional barbecue education out there. There are lots of competition classes and cooking classes. They're all great, but none that really focus on, here's how you operate a business.
0: It's so smart, too, because what I'm hearing is you're fostering growth in your own industry, too, and simultaneously continuing to make yourself the expert.
1: Right. So that puts you on a different level as well, because you continue to rise in the esteem of other people and you continue to be an expert and and you just are looked at, um, you know, with a different lens and that you have a different
0: set of skills to offer. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. So, and how did that become a big part of your story?
1: Well, So we started off with this business of barbecue class, and then people wanted more information about catering. So then I developed a seminar that's two days of catering. And then I had this idea that I wanted to talk about whole hogs. And whole hog barbecue catering is a very Carolina thing, as you know, being a South Carolinian, but it's something that uh, there's not much money in whole hogs. And for years, people would call us and want us to do a whole hog event for them. And we would steer them away from that because, you know, it's not very cost effective for the person buying those kinds of caterings. Um, and definitely wasn't a great money maker for us. Like we had to charge a lot of money to make those things happen. It wasn't a great value, but you, again, you start seeing trends and, and how things go. There's more of a trend in cooking with a whole animal. We started becoming friendlier with some people in North Carolina namely Sam Jones of Skylight Inn and now Sam Jones Barbecue and his esteemed family. So I put together this event called the Whole Hog Extravaganza. And we invited four other people to come and cook their style of whole hog. And then we cooked two whole hogs. Mm -hmm. And everybody had different wood, different seasoning, different pits, different methods. And so we went through the prep of each person doing their hog and in between that, again, I had lots of little mini seminars. But now I had the benefit of all these other guest pitmasters and their experience. So I formed panels so that we could all talk about different business topics while these hogs were cooking after we prepped them. And then on, this, on day two, we get to eat all of this. So it's like, again, a 10,000-mile road trip all in one place. You could never have it quite like that. And people loved that. That is now... You know, people come from all over. That's a class. In our business classes usually have 20 to 25 people. In the whole hog class, we can accommodate a few more people because I have more hands helping and just more going on. But it's really morphed into other types of speakers. For example, this year, I had the woman who's the casting director for Chopped, among other food shows. And we talked about how to get on TV because everybody wants to be on TV and wants to have the opportunity to promote their business in that way. It's really invaluable. Mm-hmm. She has now already cast three people from this class whom she met here on Chopped. Oh, my gosh. And other shows. How cool so is that? Cool. Right? So it's a, I'm trying to create these opportunities, much like the Southern Sea, to rub shoulders with so many interesting people that can help you elevate your business and you, people you can learn from. That's just, and I also have,
0: I'm sorry. I was just just going to say, that's just so wonderful. I mean, I I love that every person I seem to interview is so passionate also about taking the knowledge they've gained and giving back and helping other people to raise, you know, their knowledge and their game and and their business. And I, I just think it's absolutely wonderful.
1: Well, I was really raised to think generosity is a recipe for success and, you know, And nobody's getting rich in the restaurant business. This is really a passion project. Uh, You're certainly able to make a good living, but it's definitely not something that you're going to retire on or kick back and not work very hard day in, day out. You have to be passionate about this industry to really be in it and to thrive and survive. But the more you can help others, you know, it's the whole rising tide lifts all ships. We're all in this together and there is plenty for everybody. And I think once you get past that feeling that you have to hold all the knowledge in and you can't tell anybody your secrets, the more you give away, the more space you create in your brain and in your life for new things and new ideas. It's really funny how it works and you just have to let go in order to
0: reap those blessings and reap those benefits. Absolutely. And and probably you're sharing so much more of your story in that process, too, to kind of bring this theme around is that when you're more open, you're likely more often talking about what differentiates your business and not afraid to, you know, share more of exactly what makes you you and unique and, and oftentimes I find people who are afraid to share their story tend to, you know, not be as great about getting their story out there because they're so worried about the competition. Right.
1: And another interesting aspect of this, of Q is that what we mostly share are our mistakes. I mean, you learn so much more about how to do things from somebody's mistake than you do from their success. And those series of mistakes are what led to the success. So we really try to help people make new and different mistakes and learn from the ones we made. So we were telling you, we already did all this. Don't do that. Go off and make your own mistake because you will. We continue to make them every day, but that's how you learn. Like any successful story is just built on steps and steps of mistakes and working around and how did I get here? Yeah. Uh,
0: what I love is you being willing to admit that mistakes are still made because, you know, with this tremendous success and you know, all the acclaim that 17th Street Barbecue has received and you as well, you tend to, as an outsider, believe that mistakes are no longer made, right? That you guys are just then perfect and you ride off into the sunset and everything is just... Genius and lucrative and wonderful. And, and I wish you could see my face right now because <laughs> I'm laughing so hard. If only, right. if only, if only. Um, so do you want to share maybe one mistake that you've made along the way that might be universally understood by our listeners? I would say the biggest mistakes we have made revolve
1: around people. Ah. And there are lots of sayings, you know, be slow to hire and quick to fire And we are, you know, unlike little bunny Fufu who only got three chances, we give 10 chances sometimes. (laughs) Sometimes you just need that body to be there even though you know they're making a mistake. But we have definitely kept people on longer than we should have, um, not nipped certain behaviors in the bud when we should have because you're going too fast, you need the body, you're afraid to have the confrontation. You know, they're you don't know the whole story. There's so many things that happen, but really if, if I could go back and do anything differently, I would make a lot of those mistakes over and over, but I would definitely have a handle on the
0: people in a better way. And you would let go of some of them maybe earlier on, right? way earlier on. Okay. I love hearing that. I mean, from my 10 years of practicing labor and employment law and advising employers, large and small, on hiring and firing practices, I can absolutely attest to what you're saying, that there are very few situations where you regret the termination that you know is inevitable.
1: Yes. I have a dear friend um, who sadly passed away earlier this year, Rick Schmidt from Kreitz Market in Lockhart, Texas. And he was on the board also, in addition to owning a very esteemed legendary barbecue place, he was on the board of his local electric company. And at one of their seminars he went to as a board member, uh, he came back with this tidbit of information that I have never forgotten. And that is, you know, within two weeks, if somebody is going to work out And it usually takes two years to get rid of the person.
0: Oh, absolutely true. Absolutely. Isn't that interesting? It is interesting. Yes, we as employers very often believe it is something wrong with us and that we have failed them versus the opposite, versus it simply not being a good fit. So I'm always telling employers, you know, Instead of believing that, releasing them is giving them the opportunity to find what is a good fit. And you hanging on to them for a longer period of time actually robs them of their opportunity to find that good fit even earlier. Absolutely. Yeah. So you have obviously evolved and grown in amazing ways and done this, you know, beautiful job uh, of sharing your growth with other companies. And I believe now you have grown in a new way. So I, I definitely want to make sure our listeners hear about your latest growth project, if you will, and what is that? Absolutely. So I we have two restaurants. We have an event facility,
1: a catering kitchen, a mail order operation, the consulting arm of our company. I've written two books. We have a lot going on here. And in order to continue to grow, you still have to have more avenues of growth. And we really do not want to have any more restaurants. We have learned that having a restaurant that's too far away from us just does not work very well. We had a restaurant outside of St. Louis, um, an hour and a half away. We couldn't get there as often as we needed to. And we never did a great job of instilling our culture in that restaurant. We We would send people homegrown people there and move them there to be the manager they would want to come home we would hire locally and those people didn't quite drink the kool-aid or understand our culture and it just did not work out very well so we don't really want to have another restaurant but what i was very interested in is growing our barbecue sauce business and what we ended up doing is buying a building right around the corner from our restaurant a building that was the first car dealership in our town and We are renovating that and we are building a barbecue sauce factory. The front part of the building where the showroom would have been for the cars is going to be a fast casual breakfast lunch coffee all day situation but a real focus is this factory and we are going to be producing our own sauce in-house and we're going to co-pack for other people. We have a We've been selling for the past few years, um, really expanding our growth. um, Sorry, really expanding our sales of our barbecue sauce. I have a broker we work with who has a network of brokers, so we're really coast to coast and even international in selling this sauce. But nobody likes their co-packer, and we had a bad experience with ours. And so I want to be the co-packer people like. I want to be able to produce sauces and condiments for people in smaller batches. And we're going to use non-GMO ingredients if the person wants that. You know, there's a real trend to that. Um, We're selling briskly in Whole Foods. And by 2020, you really have to let people know on your label if you use non-GMO ingredients or not. And so, we've gone through a lot of the process um, to have those non-GMO ingredients. And that's a whole thing in and of itself if you want to be called organic or non-GMO or all these other designations, kosher, for example. So we want to offer those services to other people. And I've collected uh, lots of names. And plus, I have all of these people who've come to our classes. And if they're close enough to us and or within our freight corridor, and it makes sense shipping-wise, I really feel that we're going to be able to help a lot of people in our region and in a whole you know larger section of the country produce their goods that they want to sell.
0: I am so excited about that. There are so many reasons I'm, I'm fumbling over the words because I'm thinking through them all in my head. I mean, one is that it continues this, you know, storytelling and growth opportunities that you're giving so many other people who have great ideas, but they're very concerned about their ability to get that word out there about their existence or produce enough to be able to meet demand. And now to know that someone like you exists and is going to do it in such a honorable way is so exciting. And I think that hopefully if there are listeners out there that, you know, do produce something, that they can be energized by the idea that someone like you exists now.
1: Well, I hope so. And Again, we are still um, in the process, in the building process of this. We're we're getting closer to the end. We are a year behind, and this has been such a learning process. And you want to talk about mistakes and frustrations? Um, If I weren't so invested, I would have given up long ago. And I really don't give up anything very easily or very quickly. But I have certainly been tried in several different (laughs) ways in this process. It's not like building a restaurant, you know, which we've done and we know how to do, but. Building a factory is a whole new thing and nobody really knows the answers to your questions. It's not like there's a checklist out there and you just start going down the checklist. And I have been led down so many, you know, dark alleys and on so many wild goose chases trying to get information from the government, from the local authorities, from anybody. It's really been trying to say the least, but I'm I'm really hopeful that by the fall we are up and running. Our equipment is actually being you know, palleted and trucked to us this week. So we're we're near the end, and I'm super excited
0: about it. Well, congratulations to you. Uh, I'm Thank you. In all of all that you've done and accomplished in this industry, and the impact that you and your family have have had on this industry is monumental. And it's so exciting to get to hear more from a woman in the industry who's made such a big impact. So. I'm very curious, though, as we kind of wrap this up about what is your 30-second commercial when someone says, Amy Mills, what do you do? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> now you've really
1: put me on the spot. I don't know that I have a quick answer for that. <laughs> Tell us I'm, your story,
0: which, which my, is the 30-second commercial. My
1: story is that I am the third generation in a family barbecue business, And I am carrying on a legacy of just a really rich, you know, heritage and tradition of something that is near and dear to my family. And I am taking it into the next century and running this business and all facets of it. I love it
0: Uh, for many reasons, but you connect to the personal aspects of it. You describe your why in there. And then lastly, you own it, which is fantastic and I love that you will not shy away from that ownership and desire to you know be the forefront of the business and the brand going forward so good for you well done well done
1: (laughs) thank you one thing I didn't say and this could maybe be inserted at the beginning I don't know but you know while I lived in Boston for all of these years and raised my family there then began working you know back and forth at 17th Street I still have a home in Boston, but I really am in Southern Illinois now 99% of the time. My dad has had some health issues in the past few years. And increasingly, I took on more and more of the business. But really, since all of those things happened, I've been running the business. And in any business like this, you know, when people think, oh my gosh, Mike Mills isn't there, the barbecue tastes different now well, he hasn't been here or been doing that for the past several years. And I don't think people have noticed. Um, And it's not something that we trumpet or talk about too much because he does come to work every day and and he's here in the building. But the day-to-day running of it has, you know, the torch has been passed. And I don't talk about those things because I just want it to be a continuum. And, you know, nobody needs to know all your business all the time. But you know, I'm, I'm really proud. Um, I'm, I'm honored to have the opportunity to be here and to take this over. You know, I helped build it for the past 19 years. So it's not as though I was just never here and I came back into it, but it's also a real privilege to be able to be here and take care of him. And had my children been younger or any of this had happened in a different time in my life, things might be very different, but, um, it's, it's really been the best possible situation.
0: And so, here we are. Yeah. Timing is everything, right? Absolutely. Well, congratulations to you on all that you have done and accomplished. Um, I always love to give our guests an opportunity to tell our listeners exactly how they can get involved with you, buy some of your barbecue, maybe even come to one of your courses because they want to start their own barbecue business. So share that with us quickly.
1: Okay. We have classes three times a year. So the next one will be in October. You could come to that if you're in the profession. We have all kinds of events people can come and participate in. We have our 32nd annual Praise the Lord Murfreesboro Barbecue Cook-Off coming up in September the 19th through the 21st. And there's a steak cook-off component of that as well. We travel... Across the country doing events. We just got back from Chicago. We will be in St. Simon's Island in early October cooking at Firebox. We will be at the Kentucky State Barbecue Festival in Danville, Kentucky, right after Labor Day. And then all throughout August through Labor Day, we will be at two different Illinois state fairs. You can also catch me on a couple of TV things that are very exciting and happening this month. Um, there's a show called Fire Masters that I filmed in Canada for Food Network, and that has been picked up by the Cooking Channel in the United States, and that airs on Saturday nights. There, I'm only on a few episodes of that. I think I have one more coming up soon, and then I have four more next season. Fine. I have a yeah, new I'm show. definitely adding that to my
0: chair. <laughs> yeah.
1: I have a new show coming out next Thursday, August 1st. Coming out Thursday, August 1st, with Bobby Flay and Michael Simon. It's called Barbecue Brawl. And I'm one of the judges on that with two of my great barbecue friends, Mo Quezon and Chris Lilly. And some of the competitors are people I know and some are people I'm just getting to know and it is going to be a great, fun show. And then I have another pilot I shot that I don't have an air date for yet or too much information yet, but I'll be putting that out on social media um, and in our newsletter for people to be able to watch that. And then also this fall, I will be a guest judge on an episode of Beat Bobby Flay.
0: No. Yes. Oh, gosh. Amy, you have got to share that with us as well. That This is tremendously exciting. It sounds like you're getting many, many more opportunities to share your story about 17th Street Barbecue in huge ways. So congratulations. Thank you. And obviously, you can also buy our
1: barbecue sauces at grocery stores nationwide. So if you can't do any of those other things, you can still get a taste of it, um, you know, via mail order from us or at your own local store.
0: And is it called 17th Street Barbecue Sauce? It is. Okay, great. I will be investing in some today. Cannot Mm -hmm. wait. Well, Well, send me your address and I'll send you some. Oh, even better, even better. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Amy. It has been an absolute delight. I'm grinning ear to ear because I I just love hearing women who are killing it like you. And congrats for just killing it. (laughs) You are so nice. Thank you.
1: I, again, I just have to say, I loved meeting you and hearing your story. I'm so fascinated by your coaching and all the things you do. And I can't wait to learn more from you and be in the audience in one of your session someday. Well, you are sweet. I really
0: appreciate it. Hopefully we will collaborate soon. I hope so. Thanks so much for listening to the Hitting Rock Middle podcast. I'm your host, Sally Holder. Remember, you can always find out more about me by visiting sallyholder.com. That's S-A-L-L-I-E-H-O-L-D-E-R.com. I hope you've gotten a lot out of this episode and there's even more content on my website to support you, including a link to my weekly email filled with tons of business tips to help make your business bigger, bolder, and more successful. Oh, and don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Google Play or however you're listening. And if you've enjoyed listening, please leave us a review. We'll be back next time with another empowering story of someone dreaming beyond the American dream. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.